Now, when we're trying to discern God's will, it's important that we consider the influence that circumstances are having on our lives and our perspective. Now, a key circumstance here is in verse 1 when it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Back in that culture, a primary purpose of wives, probably the primary purpose, was to bear children. And if, after a few years of marriage, there were no children being born out of that marriage, people would begin to raise their eyebrows at the wife. The wife would probably begin to feel defective. And people would begin whispering behind her back, pointing fingers, wondering what type of sin had she committed. Because she must have done something to offend God, or else she'd be having children, so they thought. Infertility was, and still is, painful beyond words. And that was the situation that Sarai found herself in. So that was key circumstance number one. Key circumstance number two is that God had promised Abram that he would become a father. In last week's passage, God told Abram, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Now, as a brief side note, I want to point out the graphics for this series. If you look closely within the words father of faith, you will see that there are a lot of stars. That represents the promise that God made to Abram that he would have countless children and descendants down through the generations. Now, in Genesis chapter 16, we see these two key circumstances about infertility, but a promise of children, they're rattling around in Sarai's mind. And that led to problematic decision number one, which was to have Hagar, who is Sarai's servant, bear Abram's child. We see this spelled out in verses one and two. It says, Sarai had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, if you're grasping what is going on here, you're probably thinking, that sounds like such a terrible idea. I mean, if you're married or think about yourself being married at some point or in the future or in the past, you're probably thinking, there's no way I'd want my spouse to sleep with someone else just so they could have children. I would not want that one bit. And you may be wondering, how in the world could Sarai think this might have been God's will? Let me offer a couple of perspectives of what might be going through Sarai's mind. First of all, I imagine she was kind of impatient. She had been infertile for a very long time. It is hard to wait for God's timing. God had promised kids, and so perhaps she was thinking, you know, maybe God wants us to take some initiative here. Maybe he wants us to do something. Maybe I can kind of jumpstart God's plan for having children. So impatience probably played a role in it. On top of this, what Sarai proposed was actually seen as appropriate back in that culture. In that culture, it was accepted and at times even expected that if a husband had a wife who was not bearing children, if she was seen as being infertile, then it was, again, accepted or even expected that he would take his wife's servant and impregnate her and then the child would be regarded as the child of not the servant, but the first wife. So that was an accepted practice back in that culture. Their view of conception was a little different than what we understand today because of science and biology and stuff. They viewed women as being incubators, 
They maybe didn't use that term, but that was the essence of what they interpreted as. Women were incubators. Men, uh, the husband, would plant the seed of the baby in the incubator. The baby would grow and then be born. But if the, if the primary incubator wasn't working properly, I'll just go out and seek another incubator. So that's essentially what Sarai was proposing. She said to Abram, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So a plan here is unfolding. The question is whether that plan was from God. Let's move on to the passage. We're going to pick up in verse 2. It says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So we see here problematic decision number two. It's that Abram became too passive about seeking God's will. Sarah tells Abram, her husband, to impregnate Hagar. And in response, this is Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. He listened to Sarai's voice, but what about listening for the voice of God? We don't see any evidence here of seeking God's will. We see many times in the past in Abram's life that he intentionally sought out God. He sought God's guidance and wisdom. He sought to worship God intentionally. But we don't see any evidence of that here. I mean, Abram could have put on the brakes and said, okay, we need to slow down a little bit, seek God, ask God, is this your will? What do you want us to do here? And instead, what we see is he just went along with, with Sarai's plan. And then it says he went into Hagar and she conceived. So problematic decisions here are piling up. And that's what happens when we are not seeking God's will. When we step outside of God's will, things can become messy very quickly. And that leads then to key circumstance number three. As we observe what's taking place, we see that Hagar's, Hagar's status skyrocketed, which increased Sarai's insecurity. In verse 4, it says, When Sarai saw that Hagar had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So for many years, the distinction between master and servant was very clear. But now, all of a sudden, Hagar has been elevated above Sarai in one key, super important category. And that is that Hagar is carrying Abram's baby. As a key category back then. And, and this just sounds so scandalous, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like something you'd see on a soap opera or reading a novel, but it's taking place right in the pages of the Bible. And Sarai now is feeling her age and her barrenness in a new way. I mean, it's hitting her harder, perhaps, than ever before. And she's probably thinking, how dare this young woman just swoop in and now be carrying my husband's child? And so she is seething here. She is angry. She's upset at everyone around her. And I think it's important for us to pause here. 
Unfortunately, Abram and Sarai didn't pause, but it's important for us to pause and consider the fact that Sarai's anger could have served as a wake-up call. A wake-up call that, you know, maybe we need to recalibrate what's happening here. Maybe we need to repent of what we have been doing. They could say, well, we need to slow down a little bit. Obviously, things are getting kind of messy here. We, maybe we've made a mistake. We thought we were following God's will, but, but maybe we actually have not been following God's will. God, what do you want us to do from here on out? They could have done this. Really, they should have done this, but they did not. Instead, we come to problematic decisions number three and four, that Sarai and Abram both refused to take responsibility. In verse five, Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarai is mad. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So Sarai here is blaming Abram, even though the plan was her idea to begin with. Abram says, Don't blame me. It's not my fault. You know what? If you're angry, take it out on your servant. Do to her whatever you want to do. But don't blame me. Now notice here that they aren't even using Hagar's name at this point. That's how much they're demeaning her. They're just calling her some servant. But all that's happening right here is they're denying responsibility, points to a dynamic that's very common for, for pretty much, I mean, at least many, many people. It's a common dynamic. It's a dynamic that says that when my life is a mess, it's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. Maybe it's God's fault, but it's not my fault. And this tendency to blame others goes back even to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They sinned against God, and they're trying to hide from God because they're ashamed. God comes and seeks them out. He finds them and says, Adam, what did you do here? Adam says, it's not my fault. It's that woman who you put here with me. It's her fault. So Adam, rather than taking responsibility, blames Eve. And in the process, blames God, saying, you know what? God, you were the one who put here her here with me. So God goes over to Eve and says, Eve, what have you done? And Eve says, it's not my fault. It was the serpent, Satan. He's the one who made me do this. So it's the blame game. It started in the Garden of Eden. It continues on through Genesis 16, continues on today. Now, in the, in the context of, of wanting to seek out and discern God's will, it's important to understand that the blame game is never God's will. God's will is that if we find ourselves in a messy circumstance, if the first person that we look to, to to consider what's happening here, what needs to be done is ourselves, that we examine ourselves and, and consider and pray and ask God to reveal to us, what is my part in this problem here? Is there something I need to repent from? It's important to do that rather than refusing to take responsibility and just making the problem worse. But for Abram and Sarai, They were not thinking clearly. They were just caught up in the spiral of sin and the spiral of pain. And whenever there is sin, people end up getting hurt, which is what happens next. Problematic decision number five is that Sarai abused Hagar. In verse six, it says, Then Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and she fled from her. And I think, you know, we look at Hagar here. We've been talking mostly about Sarah and, and, and Abram. But we have to feel for Hagar here. Because she didn't have a real choice 
in this matter. In verse 3, it says, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So took and gave. So Hagar was acted upon. Now, back in that culture, what happened to her would not have been seen as rape. But at the same time, when you look at the disparity of power between her masters and Hagar, we cannot really say that Hagar was a fully willing participant in what was taking place either. She was a victim. And then she became more of a victim when Sarai started abusing her. And so she fled. Hagar ran away. She ran south, presumably perhaps even running back to her homeland in Egypt. And it is this time when Hagar is running away that God finally makes an appearance in this passage. I mean, it seems like he should have been brought in a whole lot earlier as Abram and Sarai were considering some big decisions out before them. But they didn't consult God. They just presumed that they knew what God's will was. But here, after Hagar is fleeing, is when God makes an appearance. And he makes his appearance not to Abram or Sarai, but to Hagar. And God saw that Hagar was in great need. And he comforted her, which transformed her outlook. I mean, you can read the rest of Genesis 16 to see this encounter, but the climax of it all is in verse 13, where it says that Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. God had just appeared to her, had spoken with her. And she says, You are the God who sees me. Hagar had been shunned by her earthly masters. But God pursued her. And this is so beautiful when you really think about it. That God has a heart for those who are broken and downtrodden. She says, you are the God who sees. I think what a beautiful gift that is. To be seen as we truly are. But not to be rejected. Instead, to be embraced. And that's that's what Hagar is experiencing from God. And she just, I mean, it's just beautiful. That's what love does. And God is love. And we see that even amid Hagar's messy circumstances, she's being embraced by God out of his love. Now, perhaps even today you find yourself in a circumstance kind of like Hagar, where messy circumstances and bad decisions have just piled up, just leaving you reeling. You know, God wants to do the same for you that he did for Hagar. I've just come to you, comfort you, provide guidance for you, just like he did for Hagar. Now, interestingly, God tells Hagar, hey, go back to Sarai and Abram. And that's what Hagar does. But she returns as a changed woman with confidence that comes from the presence and blessing of God going with her. Now, we were talking about discerning God's will here. We've seen Abram and Sarai trying to do what they think is maybe God's will. They're making a big mess of things. But when we talk about discerning God's will, I think we would all want God's will to be as clear for us as it was for Hagar in this instance, where God clearly tells Hagar, go back to Abram and Sarai. Hagar obeyed. I think we all naturally want God's will to be just as clear for us of God just saying, hey, do this and do this and do this. But I think we also need to be careful not to delude ourselves and thinking, well, if we just knew God's will with absolute clarity, then we'd follow it every time. 
Because there are so many instances where people know clearly what the Bible teaches, what God is calling them to, yet they still don't do it, which just displays our sinful nature at work. But still, I think we all want that clarity of God's will. But that clarity is, is relatively rare in, in some senses. I mean, in some senses, I, I think that we can relate pretty well to Abram and Sarai, where we have some decisions to make. We're trying to figure out what's God's will in this, but we aren't quite positive. We aren't quite sure. Bible scholar John Walton, referring to Genesis chapter 16, our chapter that we're looking at today, says, Abram suffers as much from lack of specific information from God as we sometimes experience in our decisions. So when we have a decision that needs to be made, how do we discern God's will when his will doesn't seem crystal clear? That's what I want to talk about in the rest of our time together today by looking at six principles that we can apply for discerning God's will. And the first principle is by far the most important one, is to get to know God's revealed will as well as possible through Scripture. God has already revealed so much about his will right in the Bible. It's right there available for us. That's the idea of his revealed will. He's revealed it to us already in Scripture. I mean, the Bible may not tell us exactly the name of the person that we should marry. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly whether we should buy that piece of property up north or whether we should sign our kids up for some traveling sports team. The Bible doesn't go into that level of specificity in every single circumstance. The Bible tells us a lot about what God's will is and gives us principles that we can apply in these circumstances. For instance, if someone is wondering, who should I marry? The Bible has a lot to say about characteristics of a good and godly husband or wife that we can apply as we're making that decision. And also the Bible gives a boundary marker in that circumstance of, you know, if we're a Christian, if we're following Jesus and we're considering if we should marry someone who's not a follower of Jesus, the Bible makes God's will very clear and says no. So there's a lot in the Bible about God's will in the case of who to marry. Or think about if you're upset with someone and you're tempted to start gossiping with someone else about that person. The Bible says very clearly, no, God's will is that you don't gossip about that person. Instead, the Bible says God's will is that you would go directly to the source, seek to be reconciled. Or if your spouse is infertile, is not having children, the Bible is crystal clear that you should not go sleep with someone else just to have a baby. I mean, these are some very clear directives of God's will from the Bible that we have access directly to. So it's important that we become very familiar with what God has already revealed to us if we want to follow his will in our life. Romans 12 verse 2 says, Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. A challenge is that every single day we are immersed in the values of the world around us. And it's so easy to internalize those values. And that was a big part of the problem that Abram and Sarai faced. They internalize the value of the culture around them that, hey, if you're not having a baby within your marriage, if it's not happening, it's fine to sleep with someone else then. That's what their culture said, and they internalized that value, and it led to tragic consequences. They sincerely believed that their plan was the will of God, but it was certainly not. So it's important to get to know God's revealed will as well as possible through Scripture. 
And to do this, we must spend regular time getting to know God through Scripture. This points to the value of worship services like this. It points to the value of, of Christian classes and Bible studies and small groups. It points to the value of getting the Scripture on our own to learn more about God's will through Scripture. Because if we aren't actively seeking to get to know God's will through Scripture, it is inevitable that we are going to be conformed to the pattern and the values of this world. And then in the process, we're going to end up confusing the world's values with God's will. So that's the first and most important principle. Get to know God's revealed will through Scripture. Second principle is think of others who will be impacted by your decision. I mean, did Sarai or Abram consider how their decision was going to impact Hagar? Nope. Did, did Abram consider how Sarai's plan that she laid out for Abram, did he consider how that plan was going to impact Sarai? No. He just went right along with it. If, I mean, if they had taken some time to apply wisdom and care to the situation of, of thinking about, you know, how is this decision going to impact others? They probably would have avoided the whole fiasco. I mean, for us, as we're thinking about decisions that we may be making, we need to consider how will this impact others around me, my, my spouse, my children, my friends, maybe my church family. Now, one particular type of impact is spiritual impact. Because God's revealed will is always that we will be growing closer to God and that our family will be growing closer to God. And so what that means, if that is God's will, and since that is God's will, is that when we are considering decisions, we're entering onto some dangerous ground if we are making decisions, especially multiple decisions, that lead to us or family members having less exposure to people and to activities who can help nurture their relationship with God. So that's where, again, we need to go back to what has God already revealed and apply that and think of how will others be impacted by our decision. A third principle is to analyze the influence that circumstances are having on us. But don't read too much into circumstances. You know, circumstances can be a really tricky source for trying to discern God's will. It's especially tricky when we want something really badly, because when we want something really badly, what we do is look at circumstances through the lens of confirmation bias. That we end up interpreting the circumstances in a way that, that proves what we already wanted. And that makes us think, well, yeah, of course that's God's will. You know, for Abram and Sarai, they had circumstances that were pulling them in different directions. On one hand, they had many different circumstances through the years that displayed God's faithfulness and God's guidance. And they just needed to trust God. And God would take care of them. God had their back. But on the other hand, they had some pressing circumstances of infertility and the amount of time since God had made his original promise about children coming. And so for them, their circumstances were pulling them in different ways, and it shows that circumstances can be a tricky source for trying to discern God's will. We should consider circumstances, but at the same time, don't read too much into them. Now, a fourth principle for discerning God's will is to question our motives. It's easy to be quick to question the motives and ideas of other people, but it's important that we question our own motives, that we don't just assume that our motives are always pure and godly, because frequently our motives are mixed. I mean, for Abram and Sarai, they were probably motivated by anxiety or by shame or by impatience. 
And these types of motives generally lead to foolish decisions. So we need to examine what are the motives that are, that are um, spurring us forward here and guiding us in making the decision. Also, walk a little slower as we're making decisions. Our culture moves quickly and instills a deep impatience in us. I like what Chuck Swindoll, a pastor, he, he says that the great American prayer is three words. Lord, hurry up. It's seen as the great American prayer, and I think there's a lot of truth in that, that we want God to go quicker, we get impatient. But when making decisions, especially big ones, it's valuable to slow down and ask God to give us wisdom, to give us patience, to give us self-control, and not jump too quickly, but instead to be patient and seeking to discern his will. In my family's house, we have a saying that haste makes waste. How along with that, haste also tends to lead to poor decisions. Now, a sixth and final principle I want to point out for discerning God's will is that when you move forward, do so with humility and flexibility. Now, you may get the impression from some of what I'm saying here that I never want us to move forward on trying to pursue God's will, just, just kind of sit still and don't do anything. That's not what I'm saying here. We need to be careful in trying to discern God's will. And then when we move forward, do so with humility and flexibility. I mean, Abram and Sarai, they had an opportunity to change course even after Hagar was pregnant. They could have begun to seek God then. That would have saved them from a lot of challenges. But they, did, they didn't have that type of humility and flexibility. But for us, as we are seeking to follow God and his will in our lives, it's valuable to stay open to mid-course adjustments, to be evaluating how are things going. God, is this still your will? God, is there something I need to adjust here? Now, one thing, just practically speaking, I think it's valuable to be very slow to say, this is God's will. Now, sometimes, some, some people say that all the time. Sometimes we're just uh, periodically prone to that, just saying, you know, this is definitely God's will for me. But I think it's valuable to be cautious on using that type of phrase. And, you know, sometimes God's will is crystal clear. And many times God's will will become more clear as we are seeking to follow him down a certain path. But many times I think it's better to say, you know, I've given this a lot of thought and prayer. I have searched the scriptures. I have sought wisdom from others. And I believe this is God's will. And so this is the direction I'm going to go with humility and flexibility. But even wording it that way, if I, I believe or I think this is God's will, that can be helpful. Because then there is still room for people to maybe give some input or push back a little bit, ask some questions, without giving the impression of, oh, you're, you're questioning God. That's out of bounds. It also makes it easier for us to make mid-course adjustments. Because if we've put a stake in the ground and we say, oh, this is definitely God's will, there's a natural pride in us that's going to make it difficult for us to ever want to admit that, you know, maybe we were wrong, maybe we need to make an adjustment. That's why the humility and flexibility as we seek to follow God is so valuable. Now, it's still hard at times to discern exactly what is God's will in a specific situation, but I hope these principles are helpful, especially that first one of get to know God's revealed will through Scripture. These can save us from a lot of heartache and can help, help us navigate the complexities that we face. Now, in Genesis 16, there was a lot of heartache. It was a big mess, but it did not derail God's plan of redemption. Now, 
I do think it is kind of uncomfortable, at least for me, to look at what's taking place there. Abram, Abraham, his name later changed to such an important per- person in God's plan of redemption, who is making some horrible decisions here. It would be so much easier if the people who are representing God both in the past and even presently always are pure and above reproach and making great decisions every single time. That would be so much easier. But that's obviously not the way it always works out. But still, God's plan was still going to carry forth as we will see in the coming weeks. There were consequences. The decisions made by Abram and Sarai in Genesis 16 would have ramifications far, far into the future. But God is still faithful. He is still the one who sees people in need and comforts them. God is still the one who redeems messy situation and gives hope. God is still the one working out his plan of redemption ultimately through Jesus. And God is still the one who wants to work in us and through us to accomplish his purposes if we would only be willing to follow him. And ultimately, as we do this, All the glory is to go to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. You're gracious that when we sin, when we stumble, when we fail, you invite us to get right back up and to keep going. We thank you, Lord, that you're also gracious in wanting to be involved in our lives, wanting to guide us into true life. And Lord, I pray that you will give us each wisdom, discernment in your will. Give us patience so that we won't run out ahead of you. But give us faith so that we don't lag behind and say, no, not yet, not yet, even when you're calling us to go forward. So please guide us, Lord. And I pray that as we face difficult circumstances in our lives, at times because of our own decisions, at times because of what's happened, uh, because of others' decisions, or at times just because of the nature of this broken world, Lord, please... Help us to always find rest in you, to keep following you, and to be able to say it's well with my soul because of who you are, because you're the God who sees, and we can trust you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing as we close our service. When
Our Father, we thank you that amidst all the messy circumstances of our world, in the midst of the decisions that don't go the way that we would want them to go or the others or even you would want them to go. We thank you, Lord, that we can still say it as well with our soul. Lord, I pray that in this week and through the rest of our lives that we will be seeking you and following you. We thank you that when we fail and we do sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess them to you. That you offer us a new start that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation because the old is gone and the new has come. You did that for Abram, you did that for Sarai, you're willing to do that for us as well. We say thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace and love and guidance. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And go in peace.